This episode, like all episodes on the All Parts Open Network, is supported by Patreon backers like you. If you like Weeping Cedars and want to support it, head to patreon.com slash allpartsopen. And more importantly, if you're interested in discussing the show, your theories, and the strangeness that is Weeping Cedars, go to allportsopen.com slash weepingcedars to find our Facebook group and our Discord to discuss all things Weeping Cedars. How dangerous can an idea be? This is a difficult question, because from the very first, it can mean a lot of things. First, when we started asking that question, we had to make clear to ourselves that we aren't asking whether or not people can do harm when they are galvanized by a concept. History is awash in those kinds of horror stories. We know the answer to that question too well. Also, we aren't asking whether or not people can be socially or psychologically hurt by an idea. There are plenty of things we think about ourselves or others that can do huge amounts of harm. And finally, we aren't asking whether an idea can be a bad idea when put into practice. Sure, sharing everything sounds great, but one read of Solzhenitsyn's The Gulag Archipelago will make you think twice about how well communism actually works. Instead, this question that is so hard to get at is more like, can an idea by itself do us harm? Are there concepts that have, well, a substance of their own? And can they have, I don't know, <laughs> volition? If they can, then it seems like Weeping Cedars has one of those ideas. She's called the crone. Yellow eyes. Or just the witch. This is Weeping Cedars, a weekly documentary about the history of a small town in northern Hamilton County, New York. We are telling its story week by week from the archives of the Weeping Cedars Historical Society. Our show is presented by Riley Howard and me, Lee Mitchell. For this episode, we are going to refer to this figure who has haunted the imagination of Weeping Cedars for at least 200 years, if not more, simply as the witch. This isn't without some protest on my part. Riley and I had a long discussion about this. From my perspective, you can't really use that word without summoning a long history of othering, misogyny, and oppression. But Riley has made what I think is a convincing argument, or at least convincing enough that I'm willing to use the term with this publicly lodged concern. My argument for our terminology is basically twofold. The first point is that witches are seen as bad only in certain traditions. But in many cultures, the witch, or wise woman, was and remains a figure of power and healing. That isn't even taking into account the overall positive light in which witches are seen in the Harry Potter world. But even if we accept that the term means something reviled, exiled, and feared, we have to admit that that is precisely the description of the figure that Weeping Cedars has imagined for over two centuries. So, if we accept all of the bad connotations of the word, it remains the most accurate word to use. 
So, for the sake of clarity and making all of these acknowledgments, we will be using the term the witch with the full acknowledgement that there are many people out there who would reject the depiction of a witch given here. But that's the thing. We might think that the picture in the legends of weeping cedars are wrong, but they are there. They have a kind of substance that seems impervious to reason, science, and common sense. We've mentioned in previous episodes the presence of some form of this legend dating back as far as 1800, and perhaps even as far as the 1740s. In some versions of the story, a figure appears, always female, standing at the edge of town. In others, she appears in dreams, or in her home in the woods. There is one other place the witch tends to appear in local lore, and that is at an old gnarled ash tree known appropriately as the witch's tree. The tree appears in multiple stories about the witch. The Weeping Cedars Historical Society did an exhibit on the legend three years ago before a few people in the town asked them to take it out. But despite local taboos and fears, that exhibit supplied us with a ton of information and primary sources. Take, for example, this poem from 1825. Hie thee thither and take up thine spear, a four-withered wanton wolf slain appear. Gleamed and glowing and gelid and gaunt, the ash, the gallows, the gloaming she haunt. At first I wasn't sure that poem was even about the witch, but it was written by a local poet named Heinrich Kreger, and was included in a book of his poetry under the title Gelbe Augen. At first I thought that might be a person's name, but Riley and Google Translate told me otherwise. Gelbe Augen means yellow eyes. I took three years of German but I double-checked online. And the poem mentions the ash tree, which we are assuming is the witch's tree in town. Other parts make some sense. According to a tradition that seems to run through some of the texts, the tree was a place of hanging in the early years of the town. So saying that she haunts the gallows and the gloaming, which is just another word for dusk, all makes sense as far as a creepy story about a witch goes. But other parts don't make much sense. We're not sure what to make of the spear and wolf slain sections. But this is actually kind of common for the witch legend. Another text we found was from a travel diary of a man from Maine who was living in San Francisco that mentions weeping cedars. He returned to Portland, Maine in 1922 or 23 to visit his dying mother. He writes that she left him an address to visit a man in weeping cedars. So he traveled to the town and stayed in the hotel that had just been built at the corner of Main Street and Old Mill Road, where Gleason Court Apartments now stands. He describes the town as bustling, friendly, and wealthy, but he also describes a strange encounter that people have associated with the legend of the witch. Though used to the silences of country living for so many years in Maine, I have grown accustomed to some low and continuous drone-like buzzing of the bees in a hive from city life. So I found myself unable to fall asleep quickly, despite the comfort of my well-appointed hotel room. Thinking myself presented with an opportunity to see the town in its rarefied form, distilled down from its waking busyness, I dressed and went out for a midnight stroll. I was not disappointed, for there was a good moon and a fair light to walk by, even in the unlit parts of town. I wandered up the street named Toyoma until its end and turned right, giving the high-walled asylum a respectable berth. I thought, as I rounded on the riverside of the institution, 
that perhaps I was safe from its insanity. But I then encountered what must have been one of its patients who, having the powers of the mad, scaled the great walls to set her aged self down by a tall tree. I stopped and considered her. I had made up my mind to turn around and retrace my steps when I found myself walking inexorably to her. She sat there by the tree and held out to me a long metal object that looked something like an arrowhead. She grinned a strange grin, unladen by many teeth, and widened her eyes. For you, she said. My next waking experience was being roused by a passing policeman who took me firmly by the arm and pulled me to my feet. He took me for a drunkard, but when I related my story to him, he stared with his mouth agape and instructed me that he would escort me back to my hotel and that I should not take such evening strolls in unfamiliar towns. There are perhaps two dozen stories of this kind in the collection. People go out for an evening stroll and see an old woman by the tree. She talks to them. Sometimes she says something pretty stereotypical of a storybook witch, like, come to my house and I'll eat you, or something like that. But other times she'll say troubling things that don't make much sense, like this one from a woman's account from 1846 that was reported in the Weeping Cedars Herald, a short-lived daily paper. The young woman reported conversing with the crone who claimed that she had been sifted by the song of the Lady of Golden Tears. Authorities scolded the girl for her overactive imagination. If this was all there was to the legend, then it would be a fascinating curiosity. But it would likely just go on the stack of legends that have an unusual staying power. But these stories aren't all there is to the legend. There is a darker side to the story that casts a shadow back on our episode about the legend of Teresa Glynn. It's worth saying, first, that much of this information comes from two sources. The first is Catherine Goodman's book, Under the Shaded Cedars. The second is a work from a book called Weeping Cedars from 1742 to the Present. The present, mentioned in the title, is apparently the year 1923. I say apparently because we can't find a copy of the book. Goodman uses the book extensively in her work, and we asked pretty much everyone we could think of if they knew of the book, or had a copy, and the answer we seemed to get from everyone, whether that was Mr. Kleiber, the head of the Historical Society, or Professor Larson at a Condesit College, or the local town librarian, was that they had heard of the book, but they had never actually seen a copy. So, we are relying pretty heavily on the work of Catherine Goodman here. In 1811, Thomas Duncan Flowers, a man with a somewhat checkered past, came to Weeping Cedars to set up a small printing business at the request of a local newspaper man named Travis Clore. Clore foresaw a large boom in population in the wooded wetlands and hoped to create a newspaper that would cover the region in both scope and numbers. That paper, the Vanguard, was a weekly broadsheet paper that lasted for about six years before Clore went bankrupt. However, the printing business continued to serve the town and turned a fair profit. In November 1829, Flowers lay dying of some wasting disease, perhaps tuberculosis, and described an encounter to his wife, Cora Duncan Flowers, 
who recorded the story in her diary. She wrote of how, one day in 1817, a young woman by the name of Eulalie Farnsworth came into the printing shop and handed Flowers a manuscript for a book. She paid him to print 13 copies of the work, which he proceeded to do. She returned two months later for her books, but Flowers did not want to give them to her. He said that the material they contained was damned and dangerous, but the young woman smiled, said she understood, and then reminded him that she had a copy of the handwritten manuscript. This information was enough to convince Flowers to give her her books at the price agreed. This is where Goodman's account of this part of the story ends, but Lee had a hunch. And yes, that's how they put it. I have a hunch. Yes, in fact, I did have a hunch. It turns out that the Duncan Flowers Journal is one of those items that we were able to find and catalog over the past few months. We found the entry that Goodman referenced, and I wondered if there might not be a corresponding entry from 1817 when the event took place. And as it turns out, there was. On May 13, 1817, Cora writes, Thomas returned from his job at the printing press early today, and in quite the state. The weather here in Weeping Cedars is mild most of the year round, despite the tremendous fluctuations in the nearby village of Old Forge. Today was no different, but Thomas returned home with such a flush and sheen of perspiration that I feared that he had been taken by a fever. But he said only that he had had a troubling encounter with a young woman, and that he feared what might come from her book in the future. I hope dearly that Thomas is being responsible with his press and not putting it to unprofitable uses. There is so much nonsense that comes from the continent now that I could not abide it if he began to produce the romantic foolishness that so many are enthralled by in these later days. It seems very likely that these two entries are talking about the same event. Now, we don't know much about the young woman that Flowers encountered, but we are fairly sure that he got her name wrong. Or perhaps she gave him the wrong name. But that seems unlikely, as her name is clearly presented inside the book that Flowers printed, as is his own. We know this because we have the book. One of only three remaining copies. And there, between a tattered and faded red cover, on the first page, you can read the following. On the matter of the summoning of the witch of the Acondeset. Written by the hand of Eulalie Ferris as instructed. Weeping Cedars, T.D. Flowers Printers, New York, 1817. It's worth saying that the word witch is spelled with a Y the way you might do it in a period piece to make things seem spookier. Our copy is in pretty good condition for a book that's probably over 200 years old. It has a few small stains, and folded in the back of the book, there are a couple of pieces of yellowed paper. The book is short. From cover to cover, it's only 40 pages long, and only 23 of those pages have text. Six more pages have rough woodcuts that can be a little hard to decipher. There are 10 pages that were just left blank scattered through the text. One page has only one word on it, Wolwa. The 23 pages that do have text on them are mainly made up of two kinds of writing. The first, the one that takes up most of the text, is a string of curses. And if we're being honest, they're curses against men. There is a curse for an abusive father, an abusive husband, an unruly son, even one for a spiteful nephew. 
The curses are largely geared toward cursing certain aspects of the male anatomy to shrivel, fall off, or just turn green. Yes, there is a curse in this book to turn your unruly nephew's manhood green. If the curses are not sufficient to take care of the dastardly men in your life, the instructions, which make up only a few pages, relate how you can contact the witch of Weeping Cedars and have her deal with them permanently. The entire work is exceptionally strange, but one paragraph in the instructions stood out to us in particular. Take thee to thyself two flagons of mead, one loaf of bread of barley, and one animal of such size as can be put upon a spit. Go thee then to that hole in the earth which the Lord has smitten nigh the turn of the river. Take thee then one flagon and the loaf, and lay them there when the soil be dry. Make there supplication to that child of the mountains, cursed of the old world, which was flung upon this land by warlike men of days long past. Grovel thee then at her cave. Debase thyself afore the hag and crone and the one who dwells in the house of war needles. Lay thyself down like a worm in that dark place for the length of one watch. Then lift thyself, cleanse thyself in the waters of the dark river, and go thee thy way to one etched stone to make thy sacrifice and supplication. When Riley and I read that the first time, we were both struck by how similar the instructions were to the description given in The Legend of Teresa Glynn. In fact, the story in the Book of Legends gives an almost identical account of the ritual. We asked Professor Harvey Larson of Ikondeset College what he thought about the two texts. Well, uh, there are certainly uh, striking similarities uh, between the two texts. We asked him for a theory about how the two works written probably a hundred years apart, might be so closely related. Well, uh, when it comes to things like this, you have to have uh, one of uh, three possibilities. You might have a common source informing both texts. Uh, you might have one text directly influencing the other. Or uh, you might have one indirectly influencing the other. The possibility of the two texts being so similar without any relation is uh, <laughs> highly unlikely, and given their focus on the same character and location, uh, that possibility becomes um, about zero. We were eager for him to tell us which of these three views he thought most likely. He took a day to look over the texts and got back to us. So I am uh, personally going to argue against direct influence for the main reason that there is a pretty significant discrepancy between the two books, specifically around that uh, drink that is offered to the witch. In the early work, the drink was mead, an alcohol made from honey, and in the legend of Teresa Glynn, the drink is wine. Now, that's not a big difference, but it's enough for me to say that the author of the legend wasn't just copying from the manual. We asked Professor Larson if it was possible that the author of the story intentionally changed the drink so that it was something that her audience would be familiar with, and he suggested that she might have easily changed it to honey wine if she knew what mead was. 
If she didn't know what it was, then replacing mead with wine was a very lucky guess. So that left either indirect influence or a common source. That uh, might be impossible to know, unless we found a text that either could influence both books, or one that was a likely candidate that could be a half-step between the manual and the Book of Legends. Professor Larson also added one more comment about the two books. It's a shame that it isn't a direct influence. If it were, uh, you could pin down the Terminus ad quem. Not being a history major, I asked Riley what this term meant. She didn't know either. Google did, however. It means the point at which a thing ends. In this case, it specifically means the last date that the book might have been written. Or, if not the Terminus ad quem, at least narrow down who might have written it to a very select few people. So, to summarize, if the Book of Legends was directly influenced by the manual, then we would either know the latest date it could have been written, or if it was written after that date, we would know that there were only a few people who could have written the Book of Legends. The reason for this is that in 1908, a woman named Anna Gladstroff collected as many copies of the manual as she could and held a public burning. She was able to get her hands on 10 copies, spending a considerable amount of money to do so. In fact, she spent most of her husband's fortune in order to rid the town of what she saw as an affront to God and a threat to her town. The burning of the books was held in the front yard of St. Gladius's church and presided over by Father Galvin Cooper, the pastor at the time. How two of the three remaining copies escaped Gladstroff's fervor isn't exactly clear. However, one copy was preserved by librarian Jenna Trouvier, who gave it to her daughter, Emily Trouvier, when she died. The other two copies were given to the Weeping Cedars Historical Society in 1972 by an unknown benefactor. One of these copies remains with us. The other was sent to the 1692 Salem Witch Museum in Massachusetts. A year before the two copies were given to us, however, a public reading of the manual was given by Emily Trouvier from the steps of the Weeping Cedars Town Hall. Trouvier had become active in the women's liberation movement and saw the book as an early example of liberation. One letter to the editor from the Weeping Cedars Daily from the following week related how the reading was a vulgar presentation of dangerous ideas that attack the values of a civilized society, especially the public relation of words to the female anatomy. This comment confused us at first, and then we remembered the strange word written in the middle of the book, wolwa. It's pretty easy to imagine how that word might have been interpreted in the context of Emily Trouvier's public reading. It is also pretty easy to imagine that it was the public reading that prompted the anonymous benefactor to hand over the two other hidden copies of the manual. It seems likely that once the book was read in public and no one came to burn down the Trouvier home, that it was probably safe to hand the books over to someone else. Both the books and the list. We mentioned earlier that our copy of the book had two pieces of paper in the back. They are discolored and have writing on them. The writing was clearly done over a long period of time. It goes from boilerplate calligraphy-style writing in old broad ink to modern cursive done by a ballpoint pen. A list runs down the front of one page and covers about a third of the second page. It is a list with three columns. 
The first is a name, the second a year, and the third a combination of letters, either two or three. Rows look like this. Horace Cartwright, 1841, L.C. Michael Dalton, 1921, F.L.G. And Thomas Trembley, 1844, Y.T. Nearly every name on the list is male, with three exceptions. All three of the female names are listed with an accompanying male name, and they always have the same last name. So we assume husband and wife. These are names like Maurice and Glenda Fearbaum and Bruce and Sylvia Moyers. These are listed, by the way, as 1892 and 1961, respectively. The implication of the list, stuffed there in the back of the Book of the Witch, is obvious. And yes, every name on this list is in St. Gladius's Church Cemetery, with date of death that matches the list. By itself, the list is troubling, especially found in the back of the Book of the Witch. But there was one entry that really chilled us. We don't know what to make of it, and we have to say right away that the ink that this entry is written in looks very old, as in before ballpoint pens. It's written in that old boilerplate-style calligraphy, and it's evenly spaced between the lines before and after it. We asked Professor Larson what he thought, and he was genuinely speechless. He suggested we try to get the ink dated if we could. The line, which I suppose you've already guessed by now, reads as follows. James and Naomi Kunicki, 1829. And in the right-hand column, the initials TG. Now, if we're being reasonable, we might just have stumbled on evidence of a legend about Teresa, James, and Naomi that dates to well before the Book of Legends was written, or at least it appears to. But if we're not being reasonable, then, well, let's be honest, that's pretty spooky. And there's one more thing. As we were putting this episode together, we reviewed the list. And let me say first, we took a picture of the first page of the list to send to Professor Larson. But we didn't take a picture of the second page. So we can't be certain, but we feel fairly confident that a new name has been added to the list. This one is in red pen, and given recent local events, is very disturbing. The line reads, Jacob Brian Gladwell, 2019 FM. As everyone in town likely knows, Jacob was allegedly killed by his mother just over a month ago. We've been in contact with the local sheriff and have had to hand over the list as evidence. We have been assured that the Historical Society will get the paper back after an investigation has been completed. Also, Mr. Kleiber, Riley, and I have had to answer a number of questions, as we are theoretically the only three people with access to the paper. At best, this is a case of a cruel and heartless prank created to freak us out. At worst, the paper is evidence in the declaration of intent to harm a minor. We will keep you informed as this develops. Next week, we conclude our look at the history of Weeping Cedars by returning to the event that started our investigation, 
the riot of 1887. Stay tuned. Weeping Cedars stars Catherine Bell, Laurel Johnson, Lou DePilla, and Byron White. This episode featured Ending One by Montplaisir, as well as music by Sebastian Gottlieb and David Swantek. Our show is written and produced by Joshua Wise. Weeping Cedars is part of the All Ports Open Network, and you can find us at allportsopen.com. If you'd like to support our show and get episodes a few hours early, you can back us on patreon.com slash allportsopen. If you like our show, please rate, review, and share it with your friends.